back to Sancho's Boys. This is your co-host, Tim Amatuli. And I'm Chris Cote. And after Kurosawa nobly tried and failed to adapt a very complicated Dostoevsky novel, he's now decided to, you know, lower the bar a little bit and set his sights on something simpler. The meaning of life with Ikiru from 1952. Yes. Somehow still also based on a Russian novel, but a much shorter one that's easier to follow and not quite as based on it as The Idiot was. Yeah, not a direct adaptation of anything. It's actually got a few different inspirations. Mm-hmm. The main one is Leo Tolstoy's Russian novella, The Death of Ivan Illich, where Ivan is diagnosed with gastric cancer and feels disdain for the people who cannot understand the suffering he is in because they're ignorant and human. And it's also got some influences in other Russian pieces, namely the short story The Overcoat by Nikolai Gogol. I have no idea if that's pronounced right. And the famous play Faust. I'd recognize the Faust reference. The guy even says, the, we'll talk about it, but the, the drunken guy at the bar even says, I'll be your Mephistopheles, which is like a direct reference to the Faust. Couple different literary sources, but really born out of Kurosawa's own meditations on death. Yeah, it's very clearly his project and his idea, even if it has inspirations. With the success of Rashomon worldwide and drawing a lot of attention to Japanese cinema across the world, he was saying, like, I'm really happy that film got all those awards and everything, but I wish that the film that had done that was one that really examined modern Japan and was more about a human struggle. Yeah, he probably doesn't want to contribute to, like, the exoticism of Japan, because this is very much a movie that just plagues modern, industrialized Japan, unlike Rashomon in a lot of ways. The still rapidly redeveloping nation that is just totally mired in bureaucracy, and we'll get into it, but this is a scathing look at Japanese government. I'll say a little too scathing. It was nuts. Like, I was like, damn, like, give Japanese bureaucracy a break. Like, holy shit. He went off on bureaucrats and their nonsense. You could also call it Kafka-esque in that way. Deservedly so. They were very bureaucratic at the time. And still are. For sure. So we will go right into the plot summary. Aging bureaucrat Kanji Watanabe is given six months to live when he is diagnosed with untreatable stomach cancer. He realizes he has wasted his life and seeks to enjoy what is left of it, but he doesn't know how. Watanabe withdraws 50,000 yen for a night in the town with an eccentric novelist, but it provides no relief for the dying man. Watanabe then latches on to Toyo, a young woman from his office who is vibrant and full of life. He is able to divert his worries for a short time, but eventually she grows tired of him and leaves her job to become a toy maker, something she feels will give her life meaning. Seeking his own way to do the same, Watanabe relentlessly fights for five months to get a playground built, dying on its swing set in the snow upon its completion. After his death, family and co-workers gather at his wake to debate the motives and meaning of his final days. Understanding that Watanabe knew he was going to die, and dedicated himself to the park, they vow to make a difference like he did. Their talk results in no action, but appears to have made an impact on another government worker named Kimura, who watches over Watanabe's completed playground and expresses clear disappointment at the lack of change in his office's culture. We'll get into the actual structure of the plot. It doesn't follow it exactly. The film, like other ones like Scandal or Drunken Angel or The Idiot, is another one that's bifurcated. Yeah, but this one's also non-linear. Except for Rashomon, I think being very non-linear in the second half is pretty unique in his filmography. Rashomon is constructed like a circle. Or like a spiral, I guess. Yeah, this goes straight forward for the first half and then starts at the end and then goes backwards and then gets back to the end again. Which is actually impressively done, and I think pulled off quite nicely. I was not expecting it, though. I did not know that was like this. While it's still fresh in your mind, I know that this film is considered another in the vein of Dostoevsky. Do you notice any clear Dostoevsky, maybe literary influence from The Idiot that might carry over into here? 
That is an interesting question that I actually wasn't expecting. Dostoevsky also talks about the, like, crushing of the man's soul in bureaucracy. And most of his characters are these, like, bureaucrats who kind of live these meaningless lives. Definitely not, you know, directly like the idiot from before. But I think he tackles very similar themes and has similar concerns, even though this film was made 90 years after the writing of The Idiot and most of Dostoevsky's novels. So the bureaucracy of, we'd say, Western capitalism or capitalism in general, I think, is kind of the thing that they're tackling as the thing that crushes life. Yeah, and, and now is just transposed into contemporary Japan. Watching this film, you could tell why he would like Dostoevsky's novels. There's so much to get into, so no better place to start than the beginning with unexpected narration, which is odd because it isn't in the film a lot, and it's really dispassionate and very matter-of-fact about this man. Yeah, have we had any third-person omniscient narration in a Kurosawa film so far? Maybe a little? There's often title cards, but they're not spoken. I think there has been some... I think, like, the most beautiful might have had some, but it is probably the most overt narration we've had, and it's very brief. It only happens, like, two or three times throughout the film, opening with a weird, omniscient view of Watanabe's stomach, played amazingly by Takashi Shimura yet again. This film is made out of Takashi Shimura's face. Going solo without Toshiro Mifune. No Toshiro Mifune hotness scale in this one. Yeah, no Toshiro Mifune, strangely. There is some familiar actors and faces in this movie, but it is mostly just, as I said, a movie about Takashi Shimura's face from less than a foot away. This is essentially a Takashi Shimura one-man play. Yeah, this is the passion of Joan of Arc, but Takashi Shimura in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not entirely, but definitely you'll, you see his face and it's very close. And there's a big emphasis on that, which is part of the cinematography of this film, which was really impressive. I love the way this movie is shot. Okay, this is a bit of a spoiler. I didn't like this movie as much as I wanted to, but what I did think was completely unimpeachable was the cinematography. I thought that was fantastic. I thought it was great all around. My issues mostly came from the structure and some of the writing at the funeral scene, which I thought was excessive. Totally understandable. The way he lights Takashi Shimura's face in some scene where there's like light coming over half his face, the other half some darkness, but his eyes are still like lit up. There's a lot of eye light on him. It kind of makes his eyes glisten. Yeah, he always almost looks like he's crying. He has these like very big expressive eyes. He's such a sad, sad character, and he's always crying on the inside, and occasionally it's, it seeps out. I think this opening scene is truly masterful and sets up his character so well. I love the set design of this office with all of the stacks of paper, which is what we, like we saw in Scandal. A real thesis I have about this movie is seeing so many different pieces from earlier in this retrospective all reused and combined together to make a much more impactful whole than... I think any of them have managed so far because the stacks of paper just show the bureaucracy so much. It's blocking out windows, so there's no light coming in. He's living in a cold shadow of business and government. I think it's wonderfully set up, too, that, like, behind him are these papers, and it's horribly disorganized, but his desk is very clean, very neat, and just very simply, he just stamps the paper, moves it over, and you can tell from the opening shot that's his whole life. I think the stamp is such a nice detail because even that, his job of stamping is so impersonal that anyone could do it. Anyone could pick up his stamp and do his job. His job doesn't even require a signature. Yep, just a little stamp, which still, uh, yes, anyone can do it, but also he is the only one given the authority to do it. And the film kind of points out how ridiculous that is, where he stops showing up to work and people are like, we can't get things done. <laughs> like, this woman can't retire unless she gets the stamp. He worked like 30 years without a day off, and when someone broaches the idea of taking time off, he seems confused by it, like... Oh, I didn't realize I could do that. Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a different culture. And especially he is this heightened example of just the man who is so dedicated to his job. 
But then he uh, suddenly faces a change and then takes two or three weeks off. We open with this, like, x-ray of his stomach cancer, and then we turn it into him, and it really allows Kurosawa to define him as this, because he really is nothing but his job. Or at least he feels that way. Their mission narrator even says so. There says, we might as well not show you this. He's so boring that it's not worth seeing in a movie. He's been dead for a quarter century, even though he's just working. Yeah, he is already dead, but then he's about to die for real. Really brutal narration, uh, surprising, <laughs> in the beginning. I really do like showing the cancer screening and then showing him. We know more about his situation than he does. We're cued in right from the beginning that this man is fated for death. I thought that was the right way to do it. And you can't help seeing him be, as we'll find out later is his nickname, a mummy. A nickname given to him by Toyo, a young woman working at the office. Yeah, the only person in this movie who's likable. <laughs> who reads a pretty funny joke in the office where it's about why a government worker feels that he can't take off because people will realize that he's replaceable. Do you take off because the city hall couldn't function without you? Oh no, I, I don't take off because they could function perfectly without me and I don't want them to know. I laughed out loud when she said that. Yeah, and, and you can tell that that really affects Watanabe because it's not a joke to him. Yeah, he like comes to realize that later in the film. He's like, yeah, your joke was a, well, damn, it was true. <laughs> I could just not show up and nothing would matter. The moment she says it, it's really awkward. Everyone's like, uh. People are shocked that you would bring any joy into this office. Mm-hmm. Which is why she ends up quitting. Because after a year and a half, she's like, man, this place is so soulless and soul-sucking. I feel like I'd die if I stayed here. She says that directly to Watanabe, who has been there for 30 years. Who is dying. Is dying and at the same time is already dead. We see plaques in his room about how long he's dutifully served. 25 years of service. Kurosawa's able to say so much with just a few minutes of screen time. And then we go right into, I think, a great montage. Oh, the bureaucrat. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> this word's kind of a meme nowadays, but the classic Kafkaesque nightmare scene where you go to a bureaucrat and they're like, no, you got to go there. No, you got to go there. And then that keeps happening. You see all these actors. But all the locations are very nicely like set up to show where they are. And then they end up back right where they start and then they have a freak out. A wonderful little bureaucratic scene. It says, like, you've got to bring this to the parks department. So then it shows parks department. And then it's, oh, no, sorry, that's sanitation. you got to bring it to sanitation. And they go to sanitation. They're like, oh, sorry, that's actually the fire department's job. <laughs> like, they come up with the most ridiculous excuses. It manages to be a kind of amusing, but also horrifying. Like, wow, yeah, they just absolutely nothing is getting done. And it's so infuriating. <laughs> yeah, that was the first taste of what will be a pretty major theme of the film, which is this awful bureaucracy in Japan, <laughs> completely crushing and just non-functional. They even go to the deputy mayor, who will show up later, and he's like, in a very politician manner, is, we're so glad you're here, and because of people like you, we set up public affairs, which is actually the office they went to first, and the office they end up going back to at his recommendation. Yeah, which is the office that didn't get the thing done. He's been there so long, and he pulls out a piece of paper from a really old piece of legislation that he was trying to get passed about trying to improve the office. He winds up just tearing it off and using it to clean the stamp, just totally resigned to the office culture that is not allowing these poor mothers to get a park built for their children who are all getting sick in like a sump. On top of the pit from Drunken Angel. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that that's an accident. Yet another element of his past combining here. Maybe the real hole from Drunken Angel is the life we lived along the way. <laughs> that's the real tuberculosis government. <laughs> After watching this film, you might you might believe that he thinks that. So yeah, we get that wonderful montage, which, you know, Kurosawa at this point is very well versed in montage. This one was clean, very funny, like, also very infuriating. I think it might be my favorite montage of all we've seen. I like it a whole lot more than the 10-minute montage of walking in Stray Dog. Oh, well, if you don't count the montage that is the entire film of Stray Dog, then yeah, it's very good. <laughs> 
but yeah, so he winds up taking off and going to the hospital. Something I really like that Donald Ritchie pointed out in the book is that the place of crisis is often a hospital in Kurosawa films, which I made that connection after the fact, like, oh yeah, that's a good point, like, all of the quiet duel, all of Redbeard is gonna be about drama in hospitals. Man loves hospital dramas. Nothing good ever happens in a Kurosawa hospital. Not a positive view of the transformative power of Japanese healthcare. That is what Redbeard is for. Yes. It's nice that it's functional. He does get called. It seems it takes a long time for them to call him. But while he's there, he experiences, like, the worst encounter with a stranger you could possibly have in a hospital. <laughs> this guy goes up, starts talking to him, seems totally normal. He says, hey, that guy over there, they say he just has an ulcer, but I know he has cancer. Now let me describe to you how awful stomach cancer is and everything that will happen to you if you had stomach cancer. You know, just so you know. One thing I was a little confused about here was, at this point, does Watanabe know that he has stomach cancer? Or does he does he have all those symptoms? Or is he thinking about how awful it's going to be when he experiences them? I believe that he does have the symptoms because we do see him take some medication at the office in the beginning. He clearly is experiencing stomach pain. And I think that we're finding out that he has, I, I, I take it from his reaction that he has a lot of the symptoms. He may not have all of them, but he's definitely experienced vomiting stuff up. And I think that the sad thing is that he probably hasn't gone to the hospital until it's become too painful because he's been just going to work. Yeah, he's just not the kind of guy who would go for a thing like that until it became, you know, overwhelming. And then at that point, we learn that he has six months to live and he, he more or less does too. Though the doctor refuses to tell him that. Yeah, and I think that that's the purpose of having this kind of strange encounter with a random person in the hospital to give the diagnosis to us, the audience, that the doctors won't give in-universe to Watanabe because they don't want him to know because there's nothing they can do about it. And that, that is another very Eastern approach to it where we're just going to let... We're, we don't want him to suffer because there's nothing that he can do. So, yeah, we, we just will say that it's an ulcer and... Give him advice that would be generally helpful anyway, but ultimately we know that there's nothing we can do about it. And so he determines himself that he probably has six months to live, if not a year. But he isn't told that by the doctors. Yeah, I think Red Summer, that was like kind of a criticism of the Japanese health system. And then the doctors, unbeknownst to him, agree, yeah, that guy has six months to live at most. Like he has pretty advanced cancer. I love that there's that one doctor. We cut to him while another doctor is talking to Watanabe and we just see his back. Showing us immediately, like, this guy knows something and can't even bear to face him because he isn't allowed to go against his superior. Yeah, that actually, that is a nice parallel to the rest of the film. The younger doctor just clearly feels bad and wishes he could tell Watanabe that, you know, you have six months to live. I think that he even knows that this man knows something about it because he's saying the same information that the stranger gave him. So they won't confirm it just because what good is it going to do? Yeah, but, you know, he already knows. It's a good thing that stranger knows so much about stomach cancer. It's a little convenient that the stranger knows so much about stomach cancer, but yeah, whatever. It works. I think it's fine. Yes, but yeah, but it works. It tells us important stuff that we need to know, and it just makes sense that they wouldn't tell him. It's a little bit of bureaucracy in the hospital, too. It permeates this film. And then I love the following scene where it's almost like when someone is shot and there's like the ringing in their ears, but instead it's just pure silence as he walks down this road. Oh, yes. I forgot about that little thing. You can just tell like you're in a little bit of shock, like something is clearly wrong. I don't know what it is. Yeah, he's walking outside. You should hear the sounds. Yeah, and then suddenly there's the super loud sound of a honking truck and then all this cacophony of the industrial world closes in around him and minimizes him. Yeah, that was, that was really nice. I forgot all about that. It was, it's so like it's kind of fast too because camera backs out. It's just like a way to show the state of mind he's in at that moment. It's very effective. 
it's a brutal snap to reality, which is exactly what he's experiencing, because he's having a total existential crisis. He then goes home. That's when there's the awkward scene where his children are talking about how they, you know, want his money, and they can't wait to move out, and then he is revealed to be in the room. So yeah, Watanabe lives in a traditional Japanese home that's two levels, and on one level lives his son Mitsuo and Mitsuo's wife. They come home and Watanabe is sitting in their room, which he's not supposed to do, sitting totally in the dark. Clearly there's something wrong with them and they just don't know what, and they don't really inquire about it. They don't, which is very strange. We're going to see right afterwards in another sort of montage a lot of the backstory between the two men and understand that Mitsuo has really grown apart from his father and that he himself wasn't a very present father. Yeah, they have a very strange family dynamic and it's shown very well, I think, in the that like montage flashback scene. I was, I was surprised when suddenly like he's young at a baseball game and stuff. I was like, oh, that's a, an interesting technique, but it does a very good job, you know, showing this falling apart. It's the life flashing before your eyes thing. We see that he's widowed, that his wife died when Mitsuo was fairly young, and they went to her funeral. Then we see Mitsuo playing at a baseball game and getting out like an idiot. Yeah, getting totally erect, never making fun of him. Yeah, and everyone yells at him. And then a really sad scene of Mitsuo going into a hospital for appendicitis, and Watanabe can't stay because he has to go back to work. I know, and I feel the son clearly is really upset, and I feel bad because, like, I get why Watanabe has to go back to work. But it's, it's very brutal, and it's a little bit implied that like, that was like a big moment in there falling apart. I definitely think that that was a key moment. This probing of the psychology of a character, I think, is very Dostoevsky in nature. Because what's actually happening in the scene is Watanabe is just sitting in front of the shrine to his wife and crying. But we learn so much because like, the film's really investigating how he feels in this moment, what he's thinking about. Much more so than I think we've seen in a lot of Kurosawa's films. He's simultaneously a very fleshed out character where we really learn all about this man's life but also the unmolded type of character that Kurosawa likes to have all the way from the original Sanshiro Sugata. This man is old, but still isn't really a person. Yeah, we learn about his whole life and his whole life has sucked. And this is going to be the story of him understanding what it really meant to live, which is what Ikiru translates as to live. Watanabe, understandably, is super depressed. He spends this first night with this knowledge wrapped up in his bed crying, a very sad sight. His son calls him and he runs downstairs because he thinks he, his son wants to talk to him and that the son was just saying that they're going to bed. Good night, lock the door, we're mad at you for not locking the door. I love this shot, looking down the uh, steps and it's just him in total darkness, totally defeated. I think it's such a crushing image. Absolutely, extremely brutal. I felt so bad for him at that point when he suddenly thinks that his son cares about him because he's this heightened emotional state that even hearing his son say, hey, dad, he gets so excited. But then it's, it's really brutal when things are as they have always been, which is his son doesn't care and just tell him to lock the door. The son is going to learn about his cancer really late. We're gonna, he, he doesn't know about it and he's never told over the course of the six months. And he finds out at the wake. And I think, you know, it's all about like, you know, you never really know what someone's going through, and both of these men are guilty of not engaging enough with the other person. Watanabe didn't engage with him enough as a child, but also as an adult, Mitsuo resented him. Yeah, if Mitsuo had ever asked Watanabe what was wrong, he probably would have told him. He was even trying to tell him one point. His father is clearly really distressed, and there's something wrong with him. We find out that he's not going to work, and he knows it, and he just doesn't inquire. So he tries to have his own fun. We learn that he stopped going to work, which is shocking. We don't see him for like quite a while as everyone tries to figure out what's going on. His coworkers go to his house and they're like, where is he? The maid says he left for work this morning. I don't know. Without him there, work's piling up, but some guy can sign it, but he can't sign everything. He can't sign Toyo's resignation. 
And finally, we do find him. And this is at a bar. A very odd bar. Yeah, a bar with one patron besides him, which we don't know at first. The first thing we see is the bartender is like, hey, I'm leaving to go to the pharmacy. Do you need anything? <laughs> I was like, does this other guy own the bar? The poet guy is just a customer, but apparently the bartender is just a really nice guy. And I guess that's probably how things work back then where, you know, oh, you need anything? I'm going out. Yeah, I'm going out. Why don't you, my patron, stay in my bar? Yeah, that, you know, a different time. Kurosawa doesn't give this character a name. He's just called the novelist in the credits. But he's, I think, taking the way that Kurosawa himself might analyze a character like this and putting it into a person in-universe, where he's going into all this philosophical stuff about what it means for this man to be facing death. Watanabe is struggling with his humanity, and this novelist is breaking down his humanity and kind of taking it away from him and just examining him like a character like we are. Yes, but when he does it, it's rude. <laughs> and we do it, it's fine. <laughs> Watanabe is just drinking himself to death, truthfully. When he tells the man what he's doing, he's like, why are you doing this? This is literally suicidal. Watanabe has taken out 50,000 yen, which he's worked his whole life for money. And then now that he is just looking for a superficial way to experience happiness by spending it, he has no idea what to do. This is like half his life savings. And he just wants to, just to live, to do something. Probably, in the audience, you can tell whatever he's going to do tonight isn't really going to be how to live, but it makes sense that he wants to try this. He wants to do all these things that he's been depriving himself of. It's a necessary step in the process of, I mean, it is a bit like the bargaining phase of spending money to try and enjoy. It's like, let me live, let me live, let me buy these drinks, let me go to these different shops and bars, and obviously none of it is going to work. Spain's been a widower for over 20 years. Widowed and never remarried, to the dismay of his brother, who... Yeah. Has, oh, they cool, have a really weird relationship. This cool ass smoking, making fun of him, brother. The two of these men go out for a night they go on the, on town. the longest single night bender in, I think, film history. They do so much stuff in this one night. I was like, is this a multiple day thing? But no, it's just one night. They go to bar after bar. You never had nights like that? It just feels like okay, they, they, it'll never, ever end. They start at like what feels like 11 p.m. And then they must be out to like 5 a.m. or so. I guess they're literally out until the next morning because it's suddenly daylight. He's still outside. But it is quite a long night out in modern, thriving nightlife Japan, which is cool. I think drives that home with, like, there's the shot of, like, this whole, like, room full of, packed full of people, everyone's dancing. There's just heads bobbing around, all this kind of crazy stuff. They get harassed by these women on the street looking to get paid for sex, drink at a thousand different places. They go to all these different music venues. It's a really crazy vendor. They're playing pachinko at one point, gambling, and they go, yeah, they go to that red light district where his hat gets stolen, and then they... Buy another white hat, which he uses as another motif for this renewed change in this man where people are shocked. This man has not changed his hat in the previous 30 years. Later on, Toyo's going to have a C-3PO, oh, you didn't recognize me because of the red arm moment, because the <laughs> same man is wearing a white hat instead of a brown hat. Yeah, but uh, she's hard to think that because, can I stress this enough, this man has not changed in 30 years. <laughs> and then suddenly he's wearing a white hat after wearing a dark hat that whole time. Mind-blowing. Lots of different bars, which, again, is not good for his stomach, and he eventually will vomit, presumably blood, but we don't see it. He pulls over the car with these two women in it to throw up. Yeah, I, I think prostitutes. I think so. The entire time I was like, is Watanabe gonna fuck this woman? No, okay, how about this one? <laughs> is it gonna happen? Like, it is very heavily implied, but also it seems, like, so shocking to happen, and things apply that doesn't ever actually happen. Oh, I, I definitely don't think it does. I don't know when it would have happened, because I think we have this whole night detailed in real time. Yeah, it, yeah, it doesn't happen, but that's clearly what, like, the novelist is angling at for this night for this man. 
he's literally supplying him with sex, drugs, and alcohol to try and enjoy himself on Watanabe's dime. There's some cool shots with, like, the guy at the piano, and then there's a dry mirror above him for some reason, which makes for, like, some really cool cinematography at that point. In one of the most iconic scenes in this movie, and just one of my absolute favorites in his entire filmography. Yeah, this is also, yeah, the most important scene in the night. The guy asks, anyone want anyone want anything? Uh, any requests? And he's the only one who answers. And he says this, this song, Life is Brief, which is a different name in Japanese. Yeah, Gondla no Uta, a love ballad from 1915. Everyone in this crowd is a lot younger than him. He doesn't really fit in there, but he starts singing along when the piano player starts. Yeah, which they find shocking for some reason. Everyone stops because you can just tell that there's something happening in him. There's something in him that's slipping and is just so heartbreaking. It's almost entirely this single worm's eye close-up of Watanabe's face. Yeah, it ends on that for a really long time, and he's crying, tears coming out the direct center of his eye. Yeah, without him blinking, and I mean, he's really acting as a mirror. It's a very reflective moment of hearing this melancholic song and really rethinking your own life. I think the song is so beautiful, and then Akira Kurosawa does this amazing effect where the entire screen gets blurry because I start bawling. <laughs> Yeah, l listeners, I won't lie. I I've seen this movie a lot, and I really cried. I I find it so beautiful. It really affects me on a deep level. I did cry during this film, but I will say it was not there. But yeah, he sings with a very nice voice, especially because most of the film he rasps all of his dialogue in like this death rattle. He's like hardly speaking, but then he sings beautifully here. Shimura's acting style in this movie is very reminiscent of a no drama. It feels like his body is so rigid, but his soul is so anxious and scared, and every once in a while it kind of slips out, and he kind of has an outburst, or just suddenly starts talking really fast, and, and then catches himself, because he's used to living a really restrained Japanese life, being an office worker. He doesn't have emotional outbursts, he doesn't have really personal moments that he shares with anybody, he's really lived alone for so long, and now I think is the first time he really starts to approach the idea of it, because it's a song from his youth, and presumably a memory of him and his dead wife. Yeah, I believe it. All the value of his past is hitting him at once, and yeah, I think it's beautiful. And then Kurosawa decides, fuck it, now he's horny, and he goes to a strip club. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird that that doesn't end the night, but I guess he wanted to, like, transition it into it being the next morning and him feeling shitty without ending quite there. But yeah, it's a little, little strange. I really wish it was the end of the montage. I feel like having him watching this woman afterwards kind of cuts the emotion of it a little bit. Yeah. But I still, I still like it. And he utters the strangest noise I've ever heard. Oh, yeah, that was weird. He kind of, like, goes crazy, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Yeah, he sounds like an animal at some point, which, I mean, is probably the point of a, just a pure id desire. Yeah, but it sounds whack. It's it's very, I think he like, keeps doing it. It sounds like a seal. <laughs> yeah, so that happens. They go to the strip club. They go to another bar, and then they're going back home, and he jumps out to vomit. There's that really nice moment where the train, we don't see it, but we hear the sound of the train, kind of like the, that Godfather scene, where it's really loudly just playing over everything, and we're seeing a look between the novelist and Watanabe. Is, I think just a silent understanding, that ain't it, Chief. Yeah, this didn't work. Which, you know, no surprises, but it makes sense they tried. The night out in town did not make him feel alive. Yeah, he had to go through that process. Yeah, I mean, I would too if I was like that for 30 years. 
the end point of the night is the morning when he is walking around like completely dead eyed, just like totally dead inside and out, shuffling around town somewhere. And this is when he gets picked out by Toyo, who sees him and says, hey, section chief, glad I found you. Sign this goddamn form. We've been waiting for like over a week. Hey, can I quit? That begins the second part of the first half, which is his not creepy, but, you know, not totally above board infatuation with this girl, Toyo. I think that Kurosawa does a good job with making it understandable from both perspectives why she would be creeped out, but we're also sympathetic because we understand that it's not what he actually wants. It's just he's a man that struggles to externalize his feelings and express himself. Yeah, it's definitely not what he wants. It's just it's how it comes across. Toyo goes back to his house. That leads to some tension where his son and his son's wife think that maybe he's seeing this woman. And in fact, at one point, they shake hands because of something they're saying. And that's when the maid walks in. It's very awkward. And they look outside later and see her adjusting his jacket because he did something wrong with it or didn't tuck something in right. They're also suspicious because they know that he took out the 50,000 yen. So they assume that he took that out because he has a mistress that he didn't tell Mitsuo about. And Mitsuo is very offended that he would bring this woman back home where his dead mom's shrine is and everything. And he is totally offended by that, which just further ruptures the relationship he has with his son. I think it's well played. I go by the think that I don't think it was out of line for him to think that and get offended. Sucks they couldn't talk about it at any point until after he's dead. He was also, he was primed to think that by the uncle. The uncle who was like, oh, I bet it's a woman. He's so angry at him and we know he's wrong and he doesn't give him any chance to explain himself. You know, he doesn't say, why did you do this? He says, this is why you did this. And he's wrong. He will never get to rectify that mistake. They have this lovely conversation where she's talking about retiring and how this job sucks and it would have killed me if I did it. And he's like, ah, ah <laughs> I, I, I did it for 30 years. He's really expressing himself for the first time to this woman in a way that he wasn't the night before, where he's kind of addressing all of these things he's feeling. There is a, a cynical angle to this where he is also dehumanizing her in the same way that he himself has been dehumanized by the system that they've both worked for, because he latches onto her as honestly an object to vicariously live through because she is so young, has so much spunk, a lust for life. He admires it so much and he's trying to understand how she's doing that. This first part with the novelist is him living through artificial substances now here is him living through another person or finding a reason to live. This is his first dabbling with the idea of dedicating his life to something. But it's still in a similar way artificial because she's not consenting. He's just doing this because he can't think of anything else to do. And he doesn't have his wife anymore, who he had presumably dedicated his life to earlier. He had a purpose, and that was taken away from him by life, and his purpose trying to improve the office 20 years earlier was taken away by the system. Everything he's ever tried has not really worked, and he's just gotten by, made money, but doesn't have anything to use it for. And he's not even going to get to enjoy retirement. Yeah, so he starts investing in this relationship with this young woman. I don't know how much we have to talk about this. I mean, there's a lot of scenes of them going out having a nice time at lunch. They have this conversation where she reveals that she's given a nickname to everyone in the office. Which I find very funny. Yeah, these jabs. And it's like very clear, like way out of line, but he thinks it's funny too. And it's, it's a very cute scene. And then he learns his own nickname, which was The Mummy, which is very appropriate, especially as you see him in the beginning. He is a corpse. He looks like he's wrapped in the paper that he's working off of. Yeah, it sounds like a mummy too for the entire film, which was kind of wild. It clearly hurts him, but he also uses that as another moment of reflection and understands, damn, she's right. She gets this new job, and then, you know, you can tell that she starts to get tired of this. And she's like, you know, that was fun, but this isn't it. 
I'm not consenting to this. Like, we can't continue. She's starting to get weird feelings about what he's doing. And again, we know that it's not true, but it's totally understandable why she feels that way. And it all culminates in this scene at a coffee bar. They're on the second floor and they're sitting across from each other and he kind of lets out some emotions and tells her that he has cancer and wants to know what she does with her life. And, you know, she doesn't get it. She just is living and just naturally understands it. All I do is eat and work. Work and eat, which uh, I agree. (laughs) Me too. But she has this like defensive thing where uh, I'm not doing anything to live. I just, you know, live eating and working, which is all we know that he does too. But he's like, no, that can't be it because I do that and I'm dying. This is where he gets the idea about not dedicating himself to a person, but dedicating himself to an idea that he himself would find important because she's gotten a new job making toys and she makes this cute little bunny toy. And she says like, oh, I feel like I'm connecting with all of the kids in Japan when I make this. And that makes me feel really good. And I think that you just can see the cogs turning in his head and he just takes it and kind of leaves. She's given him the thing that he needs to keep going. And Kurosawa contrasts this with, in the background, a birthday party, the celebration of new life or another year of living. And we know that he's having the exact opposite and he's going downstairs while the girl whose birthday is being celebrated is going upstairs. I think there's a lot of nice contrast in that. And I think throughout the movie, I think it's a film about contrast. But also, like, this could be kind of seen as, like, his little birthday moment because he is actually, realistically, for the first time, living for something. Yeah, he's reborn to an extent in this film. It is, like, his birthday. But in an absolutely brutal turn, he runs to the office. He's like, you know that park that we had this whole scene about in the beginning where all these women were trying to build a park? He's like, I'm going there now. I want you to make a report on it. And the guy's like, we can't do that. That's not our division. And he's like, nope, too bad. We're doing it anyway. And then he runs out full of zeal. Thing is, he dies five months later. It's such a gut punch. It's really unexpected. Didn't hit me emotionally, it more hit me intellectually as uh, there's no way he's dead in the film because we have to see him again. <laughs> like, the rest of this movie must be about him, but that's when we learn this movie is non-linear for the first time because it starts at his funeral for the second half. This is the main problem I have with it. I really only have two major complaints with this movie. One is about the life is brief scene not ending that first segment on the town because I just think it undercuts itself a little bit, even though it's all really good. But two, I think the fact that the film is bifurcated the way it is, I become a little less engaged in the second half, but I think the second half is also good. And I feel like maybe the film would have been a little stronger dedicating itself one way or the other of either have it be linearly this guy's story or entirely people at a wake describing a man who died and then we keep seeing parts of his life. That probably could have been good. I think either version of that would have worked. And I do think the film works as it is, but it may have been a little stronger if it had done one or the other. My main problem is the way this scene is handled. We learn about his last five months through these just awful characters. who I was just so repelled by that I was like, man, like, I really want to feel for this guy, but I hate all these fucking people so much. <laughs> it's the wake at Watanabe's house. His son and daughter-in-law are there. All of the co-workers are there. And they kind of split the room between some of the co-workers that are affected by what he's done and are trying to convince the more big wigs on the other side. Yeah, it's like his department versus the rest of the bureaucracy. Yeah, of the people that really just saw him as an annoying, weird old man who suddenly died. Yeah, there's the deputy mayor there, who we see earlier with, like, the weirdest, most angular face. There's not too much specifically to delve into moment by moment. It really is just building towards them coming to the realization that we know. It really does take him the rest of his life to get this park built because he faces so much opposition within the system. The real uh, anti-bureaucratic part of the film. But it starts with the deputy mayor saying, you know... 
Watanabe was a nice man who did his job for 30 years, and then he died. The end. And it's really kind of all he's given. And then you hear that there are reporters outside, and the reporters are they're there, and he's putting on his politician face to talk to them. And they're getting at, you know, for our story, we really want to say that it seems like Watanabe got this park built. What do you have to say about that? And he's like, oh, that's ridiculous. He can't build a park. He's in public affairs. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very tribal. It's everyone has their own corner and all that matters to them is theirs. And so if something doesn't feel like it's in their jurisdiction, they'll happily just send people in circles. And he kind of like tells everyone, you know, some people are saying we're trying to be about that park. That's ridiculous. We all know that. And everyone agrees with him because they're all portrayed as these soul sucking bastards. And then it's interrupted by the actual woman from the PTA club for that part of town. The six women walk in and they immediately start crying. There's a lot of other important moments in the film. But for me, this is actually like by far the most emotionally impactful because this is where we actually see the people's lives that he's touched. And we actually see the way in which he's improved their lives. And they feel really strongly about this man. And it completely like shatters everything the deputy mayor just said about how I built that park myself because I'm the mayor. And it's just like so taken down by these women actually caring about this just random man. I I thought that was like, for me, the most beautiful moment of the film. I thought that was great. We're getting all these context clues about what's happened, what we've missed, because here it was Watanabe's future has now become the past in this narrative. And people are saying like, Park wasn't named after him, he was sidelined, even though we know he did a lot of the work for it, he sat silently at the opening ceremony, off in the corner. People noticed that there was treatment of this man that didn't seem in line with what was actually happening behind the scenes, but the people don't want to see it that way, or they can't imagine someone actually being dedicated to a cause. Kimura, who worked in Watanabe's division... Yeah, the only honorable man... (laughs) starts to really step up and eventually Mr. O'Hara joins him and the two of them are kind of saying that none of you are going to be as honorable as him and he definitely did all this and they start piecing together other parts of his life. It's essentially like a 12 angry man story in which these that one single man convinces everyone in the room that actually Watanabe was the one who built this park and they all start crying and they're like Watanabe is such a great man how could we not see we want to be like him. It shows that it's just persistence that gets the job done. It's having something that you love and care about in mind. He would ask people in the office for something and they would say no. And he would just keep asking or just stay silently, which he's very good at. Just literally stay in the room. Just stay silently in their office until he finally gets a yes. He even gets harassed by mobsters or something. By that are in red light the, district mafia guys. Like in the mayor's pocket. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that happens. But they just can't do anything about him. They're like, we're not going to beat up this old man. Yeah, well, they shake him like, don't you value your life? And he just has that pregnant pause hang in there and gives him a weird smile. Yeah, and they just walk away. They're like, well, I guess we can't do anything about this. Yeah, they're like, well, I don't know what reaction I expected, but it wasn't that one. Yep, I give up. One of the anti-Atomic people in this scene is Kamada from The Idiot coming across much more intelligent and much more of an asshole than he did in that movie, which is how that role is supposed to be. I mean, he comes across, like, actually very well here. I'm like, where was this in the previous movie? And you look like a dope the whole time. The one man Kimura convinces them all, and they all join in. It ends with them kind of all, like, really drunkenly tripping over themselves and screaming and yelling about how bad they've been and how, how good they could be like this man. Watanabe leaves in the pouring rain, and then the film cuts and he dies. We see him at the soon-to-be construction site in the pouring rain with a bunch of the women starting to survey it immediately. We can presume that it's immediately after that. We see him in all these meetings. We also see that his health is deteriorating over time. 
eventually at one point during the construction sits down with a bunch of the women and they start giving him water and wiping him down and all that. Everyone can tell that there's something wrong with him and yet Mitsuo is like, there's no way that my dad knew that he had cancer because he would have told me that. People are debating whether or not he actually knew that he would die, and the answer comes when a police officer who was on the scene brings Watanabe's dirtied white hat and tells us what happened and how he died. He died at the park that he built, that he dedicated his life to building, on the swing set in the snow, and the man didn't do anything about it when he saw him because he just thought he was a vagabond or some weird homeless man. Yeah, first he was like, I was going to arrest him, but something stopped me. What stopped him was him singing Life is Brief again. It's Takashi Shimura's beautiful baritone voice. Again, repurposing some imagery from One Wonderful Sunday to even stronger effect. The most iconic image of the film. Absolutely, yeah. Just seeing him solemnly swing in the snow. An old man at a child's park. One of the first times we're really seeing a full smile on his face as he's resigned to his fate. We don't see him die, but we know that that is where his final moments on Earth take place. And the cop blames himself, saying, oh, maybe I could have saved him, because he, he assumed that something had happened on his watch. But no, they kind of conclude that he must have known, and that he really was holding on long enough to let this moment happen, and let that be his exit. It's doubly confirmed when you learn from Mitsuo that Watanabe left behind his retirement fund and all the notes and had to access all that. And he like hid it so he could find it later that night after he had left. So he like really knew when he went to that park, this was it. He knew he was going to die there. I think it's beautiful. And this whole segment is really the illusion versus reality personified. This idea that Kurosawa always has. We spend the first half seeing what happens. And then now we see the second half. It's flipped, and we're now seeing the perception or the illusion of what people think happened, and then we see how those two kind of mesh together, and we get what can be perceived as the truth about this man. But ultimately, everyone is debating the meaning of his life and what he did, but it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what it meant to him. There's a great quote about this film from another film scholar, Richard Brown. Ikiru is a cinematic expression of modern existentialist thought. It consists of a restrained affirmation within the context of a giant negation. What it says in starkly lucid terms is that life is meaningless when everything is said and done. At the same time, one man's life can acquire meaning when he undertakes to perform some task which to him has meaning. What everyone else thinks about that man's life is utterly beside the point, even ludicrous. The meaning of his life is what he commits to the meaning of his life to be. There is nothing else. I think it's a very Nietzschean idea and overtone to the entire film. Yeah, and it very well could have been that his life would have been meaningless if he hadn't done all this. Like, he is the one that made meaning in his life by living, finding a way to be in the last five months. If he just had the cancer and died, his life wouldn't have had any inherent meaning and it would have been pretty sad. <laughs> but not that it wasn't insanely sad in its own way, but uh, in a much more fulfilling way. He does achieve his goal. Yeah, he does it, and all of the government workers claim that they will do better, they will do better, and then we cut to the next workday and... Nothing has changed. Yeah. You know they won't. Someone comes up with a very similar problem. Uh, sewage is leaking out into whatever, and they're like, oh, go to Public Works, just like in the very beginning of the film, which leads Kimura to stand up aggressively, knock his chair over, shock everyone, and then say nothing and sit down again. He's silently intimidated into saying nothing because he is so clearly affected by what Watanabe did and just realizes that everyone else claims that they were, but they really weren't. Yeah. You can tell that it really affects him. I think that Kurosawa's writing in this movie is so great that he's actually been able to give this character an arc almost entirely off screen. 
Kimura is nicknamed Jelly Noodles by Toyo because he's weak and spineless and can't really stand up for himself. And then here we see him do it. And it's not that he fails through his own means. It's really just that he's pressed down into submission, even though he is trying to fight it. To be fair, there's not much he could have done there. I think that the point is that change has to start on an individual level, and the ball that Watanabe's death has set in motion has not affected many people, but it has affected one of them. And even though Watanabe himself throughout his life couldn't affect change in this office, there is a chance that this man might be able to start getting that ball rolling further and affect more people and more people and more people until eventually down the line that change that they want may finally come. The film ends with him, Kimura looking down on the completed park. We're seeing him from below and he's in silhouette, and to me it really feels like it's the spirit of Watanabe himself. Really has passed into Kimura and he's looking down on his creation, satisfied, and walks away and the Life is Brief theme is playing on the flute. The ending of this movie almost brings me to tears. I'm getting teared up just thinking about it. I think it's probably my favorite Kurosawa ending in his entire filmography. I find it unbelievably impactful. I definitely agree with your reading on the way it was set up and how you're supposed to feel like Watanabe is in Kimura in this moment, especially with like him wearing a hat and the way it's set up and everything. They have a similar silhouette, and it's the same spot where one of Watanabe's last lines is, where he looks at a sunset and he says, I don't think I've seen a sunset for 30 years. It's so beautiful. And we saw where he was working, the windows are just covered with paper. This man lives his whole life in darkness, and now right at the end, he's seen the light. And then he says, I don't have time for that now. Another great line mentioned earlier is when one of his subordinates asks him if he's mad about his treatment, and he says just, I can't afford to hate people. I haven't got that kind of time. Yeah, so that's Ikiru. My favorite shot is when he just learned that he had cancer, and he goes home to this the shrine of his wife, and he's playing music, and it gives us one of the many close-ups of Takashi Shimura's face in this movie, but I thought this one, it's one of the early ones, and I just thought it was extremely beautifully shot. Like all of them, he has this kind of lighting that radiates across his face, lighting on his eyes, and his head's down, and it's this incredibly beautiful, incredibly sad shot of him, and it's the first time that we're seeing his psychology all just entirely on his face, and probably one of his darkest moments, just thinking about his wife and the life that he could have had, or life that he did have, and how he feels about it. Even though there's not really anything going on besides Takashi Shimura's face, and like, excellently done lighting, you know, it was an externalization of the way he feels, it was very beautiful. Yeah, there's a lot of eye lights on him in this movie. I think it does well to just make his eyes look glassy and show the tears that are welling but very rarely fall because this man isn't able to express himself. My favorite shot, we mentioned it a bit, but not the shot specifically where Kimura stands up and slowly sits back down. And the way that it's framed is the camera is slowly jibbing down in front of Kimura as he starts to descend are just stacks and stacks of paper. And the movement is done in thirds, where it's a little bit of paper and him, and then it goes down a bit and stops again, and the paper is cutting off his face halfway. He's literally drowning in paperwork. And then it goes down again, even further, when you don't even think it would go further, because he leans forward in despair, and we see nothing but paper after that. And I think that it is, again, such a strong externalization of how this man feels. It has always been an extremely strong shot to me, one that's always stood out and is one of the go-to Kurosawa shots in my mind when I think about what he does with his camera. That one stood out to me too as being like a really excellently done shot. 
the entire movie. I think the acting is great, the sound. I think the sound design of the movie is really great with, we talked about some of the scenes like where there's the silence, then the loud trucks. And also just, I think the music is great. There's tons of music throughout the movie. It feels very full. Takashi Shimura really carries it and shows how strong of a performer he is. Kurosawa does him a lot of favors, putting him in so many iconic moments, shooting the film so well. I think the story is incredibly emotional. I just wish that the execution had been a little different with it. I would still call this a masterpiece, but I am happy to say that I think that there are a lot of films that are even better than this, even though it, I think it is one of his best. It's a 9 out of 10 film for me. I absolutely thought like Kurosawa... If it wasn't clear by Rashomon, it must be clear by now he is in control of his medium as a filmmaker. It wasn't clear in The Idiot, but it is clear here. <laughs> if it, it definitely wasn't clear in The Idiot, but it is overwhelmingly clear now. He is in control. He is a master filmmaker. I, for some reason, didn't connect with this film the way I wanted to. I think I've watched it again. I might better a second time. I'm not sure. But I definitely still thought, even with that, that it was a wonderful, incredibly well-crafted film in a lot of capacities. So I want to give it an 8.5 out of 10, which I know isn't a real <laughs> rating, but that is what I am giving it. It was not quite a 9 for me, but I thought it was it was wonderful. If it had Toshiro Mifune in it, would it be a 9? Oh, don't even, don't even get me excited like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will see him next week. Oh my god, we will see him next week. In the mammoth of Kurosawa's filmography, widely considered his greatest film, Seven Samurai. Will we feel the same way? Yeah, I'm excited to watch that for three and a half hours. It, you know, honestly, I can say it doesn't feel it. It uses that time real well. It's we'll talk about it next week. I'm, I'm very excited. I've been itching to rewatch it and holding off for the review. So I'm very excited to uh, check it out again on the new Blu-ray I got of it that I didn't have before. So I don't have to switch out the disc halfway through like I do with the Lord of the Rings extended editions. <laughs> So please join us next week for what might also be a lot of people's first show, if not Rashomon, Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai.